Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part seven in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. Paul reminds the Colossian Christians of who they were, who they are, and who they will be with certain conditions. There was a technical mishap during the recording of this teaching, so the final moments have been re-recorded in the studio. And I'm going to begin this evening by making a confe- an important confession, I think. Uh, it starts like this. One of my favorite movies is the 2015 Rocky sequel, Creed. And here's the confession. I think that at this point in my life, I'm ready to make the claim that Creed, which is the seventh film in what will soon be a nine-film franchise and counting, Creed is the best Rocky movie. This is a controversial thing to say. I expected a lot of jeering and yeah. <laughs> I didn't really. If you're, if you're wondering, actually, the objectively correct ranking of the franchise goes Creed, Rocky, Rocky Balboa, which is part six, Rocky two, Creed two, Rocky three, Rocky four, and the less said about Rocky five, the better. Creed is, I think, a great piece of cinema for many reasons, but one of the most compelling elements of the story is kind of quietly folded into the setup. You guys know that I feel very strongly about the egregious sin of spoilers, but if you'll let me, I'm just gonna talk briefly about the setup of the movie. And honestly, I went and looked at the runtime, what happens in the first three minutes of the film. The setup is this, Adonis Johnson is an orphan. He's been passed around from group homes uh, and landing in juvenile detention before he is sought out by Mary Ann Creed, who is the widow of world famous boxer Apollo Creed. Adonis, it turns out, is the product of an affair. Apollo was secretly unfaithful to Marianne, and then he died before his son was born. Even so, when Marianne learns that her late husband's mistress also died, she searches out their son, who is the living result of her husband's adultery, and she takes the boy away from his life of foster care and group homes and detention centers and brings him into the loving provision of the Creed family home. Now, the movie doesn't really make a big deal out of this. Like I said, it's the setup. It happens in the first three minutes. It's just the mechanism that puts the film's characters in place so that the actual story can begin. But it is the foundation for the rest of the story. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. At Van City, we say this all the time. Open your Bibles to. We believe that... With 2,000 years of the Jesus movement, we believe that this library of writings, this ancient, beautiful, perplexing, grotesque, profound, moving, frustrating library of writings, we believe that it was breathed out or inspired by God himself. God worked with human authors to say what he wanted to say and say what they wanted to say. And that, combined with the fact that God is an artist, makes the Bible a library worth investigating, studying, reading it like a book from cover to cover, obviously slowly, (laughs) and studying it as scripture, pouring over the details. Jesus believed that the scriptures were, in his words, the human authors speaking by the spirit of God. So we 
in keeping with centuries of the church, hold these writings to be sacred and inspired and authoritative. We don't just study them to pass time on Sunday or because that's what does one what, what one does in church. We don't just look at them because they're interesting, ancient, mystical writings for inspiration in your personal life, and you take it and leave it and adjust the things that you don't like. We come to the scriptures to learn what God says and then to live in light of the truth that we find in the text. So would you guys stand with me as a gesture of reverence while we read from the scriptures, Colossians 1, beginning with verse 21. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Bennett, you regret not bringing a jacket now, don't you? He waltzed in here with his short sleeve shirt and his shorts, and everyone's making fun of me. Oh, look at this man, Mr. Goth, with his hoodie on in the middle of summer. I'm like, it's freezing up here. It feels great to get relief right when you walk into the building. Everybody's hugging and stuff. Oh, my gosh, look how great it feels in here. And then up here, it's freezing. Michael, is it cold where you're sitting? It's like the movies. You go to the movies, you bring a hoodie. You don't know if you're going to need it, but most of the time, I'd say about 90% of the time, it's so cold in there, you're going to want a hoodie regardless of the time. You, you know what I'm talking about, right, nurse? Yeah. Allah, is that you? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe. Maybe? <laughs> Think about it. All right. So in the text, I didn't mean to say it, rattle off all that stuff. In the text we just read, take your mind back there for a second. Here we have the participants in the text, we have the means by which they have been reconciled. We have the goal of their reconciliation. And then we have the conditions of their reconciliations. And that's all the stuff that we're about to get into for the next little bit. So let's work through the text one line at a time. Are you guys all, you guys all right? You still with? Dave, thank you for the hearty thumbs up. It was really high. I appreciate that. I really do. All right, look again at verse 21. It starts like this. Once you were alienated from God. Now, the Greek word that my Bible translates as alienated only shows up in the letters, like Colossians, that Paul wrote from prison, which is kind of interesting. They're relegated to a certain style of writing. And in every instance, that word alienated refers to the same group of people, Gentiles. We know because two things about this translation can be a tad misleading. First, in Greek, it's actually more like you who were alienated, meaning Paul is referring to a specific group of people within his letter's audience, as if saying, for those of you who were alienated. And secondly, the translation adds the words from God. They're not there in the original language. It just says, you who were alienated. In the broad context of how Paul uses the word alienated, he's usually talking about being alienated from God's chosen people or from Israel. Paul is talking about Gentiles or people who aren't Jewish because there were lots of Gentiles at the church in Colossae. So there you go. There's your first bit of uh, relatability in tonight's passage. Gentiles. That's most of us, I'm sure. I don't mean to imply that you need relatability to hang in there for the evening, but, you know, there it is. Enjoy. 
We have a bad habit of doing this as Christians, sort of open the Bible to any old place and you read a bit and you say, huh, that's about me. Or you just simply assume that whatever you're reading, it must be about you. What else could it possibly be about? Israel in the desert, you know, is about you being tired in your season of life right now. Or the promised land is about your big raise at work. And David and Goliath is about you being brave and doing that brave thing that you want to do, even though it's all big and intimidating. And that part right after where David saws off Goliath's big head and drags it around for days, that's about when you did that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. It's a, I know it's early in the teaching for jokes this dark. Later, we'll save them for later. You'll see. The point I was making is that this bit of relatability, the whole Gentile thing is less of a stretch, you know. The church in Colossae was made up of lots of Gentiles, like our church is, and they had been grafted into Israel's ancient story, just as we have been. That was always the plan. God did begin with one guy, Abram, and he extended that out into a nation or a family of people, Israel. But the vision from Abram from the very beginning was always that God's rescuing work would extend beyond one person, one tribe, beyond Israel, across and into all nations and all people. That was always the plan. Some of us I know we're raised in the church like I was, but most of us, I assume, were at least, you know, we grew up with some awareness of Christianity, even if the paradigm we were given wasn't exactly accurate all the time. But these Colossian Gentiles were pagans. They were not the people of God. They were outsiders. They were aliens. They knew nothing about Israel's unique way of life. So Paul writes, once you were alienated. You were so far away from the family of God. And it was actually more serious than that. Paul says that they were, quote, enemies in their minds because of their evil behaviors. Enemies in their minds. That's one way of putting it. And why in their minds? Why the specificity of the, you know, the locus of the enmity is in their actual minds. Think back to earlier in the chapter when we saw that same contrast. We'll understand that same contrast. Paul said, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Notice those intellectual words. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now he goes on to say, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, the things that they once believed were not only kind of off and mistaken and not exactly on the right path, they were enmity between them and God. And that's an incredible concept to me that you can actually be God's enemy in your mind. But we'll come back to that. It wasn't the only thing that was a hang-up for the Gentile Colossians, there's the obvious problem of evil behavior. That's a little bit more on the nose. The NIV renders the phrase, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. The CEB has it, which was shown by your evil actions. But scholar, uh, scholar Scott McKnight argues that there's actually no necessary because or by, meaning Paul is just describing three unique but interconnected realities. You were alienated, you were enemies in your mind, and you practiced evil deeds. He says, alienation described their overall condition with two manifestations, a mental resistance to God's will and, uh, and revelation, as well as behaviors that are evil. So, you were alienated. 
You were enemies in your minds, and you practiced evil deeds. This is something about which Paul would know a thing or two. Paul did not isolate himself under the sad umbrella of closed-off Christian culture, which has sadly been the story of American evangelicalism. That's why I mentioned this. We're going somewhere. There's all sorts of reasons why this happened, but arguably the main reason, I think, is likely bad eschatology. Eschatology is the branch of theology that deals with death and judgment and where all of this is eventually going to end. And for centuries of church history, from Jesus to the apostolic fathers on into the early church movement and on, really for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Christian belief was simple. There was some nuance around it, but the basic idea with somewhat uniform agreement was this. Jesus the King is going to return. The dead will be raised back to life in their physical bodies. All of the world is going to be judged, and those who are reconciled to God in Jesus will live forever with the King in a world restored without sin or suffering or death, and those who rejected Jesus would go to everlasting destruction. Then... Around 1820, at a time and place that we can actually pinpoint, just 200 years ago, if you're counting, a teenage girl in Scotland claimed to have a vision of the end of the world in which the saved would be beamed up out of the world or raptured just before all this crazy apocalypse stuff really gets going. Then a guy called John Darby argued the same thing in London, and this new fringe idea gained some momentum in Europe. Darby traveled to North America teaching his new rapture idea that he had learned or taught in London and had been developed in Scotland. And it eventually landed with someone called Cyrus Schofield, who later published the long best-selling Schofield Study Bible with the brand new rapture theology baked right in. Yada, 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 left behind. Yada, 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 I wish we'd all been ready. And the rest is history. Anyway, that's a whole other teaching, a really interesting one, I think, but here's where I was going with all that. Eventually, American evangelicalism came to believe, sort of to take for granted, that eventually God is going to zap us all up out of here, that the world would come to an end, and that we will live forever as souls up in heaven. I saw it with my own eyes at a judgment house as a teenager in Georgia. Have you ever guys, guys ever been to a judgment house? Anyone? No one? Do we only have these in Georgia? Michael, you've never been to a judgment house? Nothing. He's lying. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. It's not like you did it. It's not like you made it. <laughs> we'll talk later. Uh, it's kind of the evangelical answer to a haunted house at Halloween time, which is when they host these things. So the idea is you walk through this dark maze, and then teenage church actors depict like a suicide or a drug overdose or something, which ironically is way more horrifying than a guy in a hockey mask at the secular haunted house across the street, but what do I know? And then a Christian kid in the same story in this little drama, they die in a car wreck or something. One goes to heaven and the other goes to hell and you walk through with your youth group and you witness the whole spectacle firsthand. Hell, it turns out, is a rave with, uh, you know, like goth kids and black lights and uh, heaven is a bunch of cotton balls and worship music and people in choir robes just hugging and stuff. And there's like cellophane on the ground that represents the, you know, the crystal sea. And it's making all kinds of crunchy sounds as you walk through it. And no one wants to say this out loud, but a terrible realization begins to move through the audience. Like, oh my God, heaven seems boring. At least in hell they have a DJ. And I'm ashamed to admit this, but I've been in more than one of these things. 
And uh, they get like really, really low budget and really, really high budget. The high budget ones, you're like, oh, that's not <laughs> it's a way to pass an evening. I'll just say that. The low budget ones, you feel bad for everyone involved. And you just, you know, you kind of want to pat them on. Like, hey, you guys are trying. Good, good, good for you. Um, <laughs> and one of the more upscale ones that I went through, hell was huge. And it had those lamp bowls with like the paper fire, <laughs> you know, that kind of moves around uh, in, the, in the little lamp. And uh, Satan was sprawled out on this big black throne, and they were blasting Slayer in hell. And I don't know whose idea this was for it to be something so recognizable, at least to a certain niche audience. But I watched as these two metalhead teenagers, you know, that had been invited by their youth group, they walked into hell. They immediately, oh, recognized Slayer. They started nodding along. So I thought, oh, well, that's, go that's it for them. There's no way these guys are going to raise their hands at the end. Who wants to go to heaven? <laughs> Not even with every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, heaven had, as I recall, Michael W. Smith, who I think is as awesome as Slayer, just in a different way. Right, Michael? The other Michael? Yeah, I'm really calling on you a lot tonight. Thank you for being there for me. These guys probably needed more convincing that Michael W. Smith was just as good as Slayer, just in a different way. Anyway, where are we? Right. If you believe that we're getting zapped out of here right before the planet explodes, it makes a lot of sense to just kind of hide out in Christian culture and white knuckle it. So you extend the perimeter of the Christian bubble and then you don't have to intermingle with the big bad world. Christian friends, Christian music, Christian businesses, Christian products, Christian private schools, Christian everything. And not all, all of those things are always bad per se, but historically, the precedent set by Jesus and the disciples and carried on by Paul in the first century was, yeah, well, we live a radically different way of life, yes, but we do it right smack dab in the middle of the host culture, participating in it and its rhythms and all those things, not hiding from it and not being shaped by it. So let me use another writing from Paul to explain the difference. This is from 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Listen to how hardcore this sounds. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, in our context, in the world in which we live, in the whole, you know, kind of bubble of American evangelicalism that's all around us all the time, you might be tempted to read Paul as this kind of fret, fretful, hand-wringing, pearl-clutching conservative, that he's terrified of all these big bad things out there in the big bad world. But this was Paul's world. It was the world he inhabited every single day. It was what he saw all the time. Scholar Scott McKnight argues, Paul saw such in every Roman city. Paul's expression in Colossians 1.21 about evil deeds flows out of his daily observations of Roman male behaviors. And look, it's the exact same dichotomy. In 1 Corinthians, you get that is what some of you were, but you were washed you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And in our text tonight, once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Scholar N.T. Wright describes this as Paul's you are here 
writing technique. It's as if Paul is plotting the status and identity of these disciples of Jesus on a map with regard to where they've been and where they are going. There was a time when you were outside of the kingdom. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you lived a certain way as a result. There was a time when you were not included in the covenant of God. You lived as if God meant nothing to you. You knew nothing about right belief, let alone right living, and you were en route to destruction. That is where you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, justified, reconciled. Now you are without blemish, free from accusation. That is where you are. This is how Paul talks to Gentiles throughout his writing. Look at this from Ephesians 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You belong to all of this. You've inherited all this. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Temple, listen to how Jewish the language is as he writes the Gentiles. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You weren't in the family but now you are not just a member of the nation of Israel, but a member of the household of God himself. You have been adopted into the family. And here's how. Look back at Colossians 1, verse 22. Now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, it seems like a given if you know the story, but think about it this way. We are reconciled by the self-sacrificial action of God. And this is really important because it means that we aren't reconciled just because God decided one day to flip a switch and make us reconciled. And we aren't reconciled because God thought about us one way at one point, and now he just decided to think about us another way. And it's as if our status suddenly changed by God's thinking. We are reconciled because God acted in human history. And his action was real. It was physical and mental and spiritual and cosmic. So God is able to reconcile us, everything that we are, bodies, mind, soul, and all of creation, because God, in Jesus, conquered death on the cross and in the resurrection. In his physical body, within time, within the space-time continuum, at a real place, a geographical location, in the world. It's not some cosmic ephemeral idea. God acted in human history. So God did the work. He wanted you. You did not want him. You ran away. You gave, and God gave himself up to bring you back. And now, because of what God has accomplished in Jesus, we can be reconciled to God, holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, empowered to live the way of Jesus by his spirit freely given. It's a screaming deal, actually. And it all sounds very churchy, I know, very Christian. But Paul doesn't end there. And here's where it gets controversial. So this is where I like it. Look at verse 23. What is the very first word? What's that? If. 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 And it's the same sentence that began in verse 22. So it's connected to the idea that we just read. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. It's so beautiful. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move 
from the hope held out in the gospel. There it is. There is a conditional clause in the writing. Scott McKnight argues, saving faith, as it is often said, is persevering faith. And without persevering faith, there is no salvation. Another scholar, Mu, yes, there is a theologian named Mu, says the exact same thing. Paul wants to confront the Colossians with the reality that their eventual salvation depends on their remaining faithfulness to Christ and to the true gospel. In his commentary on the passage, Ben Witherington says the same thing. Paul believes moral effort is required of the Colossians if they are to reach the finish line and hear the benediction of their own lives. Reconciliation is not some automatic process. On the contrary, the Colossians need to continue steadfast in the faith. We tend to think of salvation as this thing that happens in an instant and then that's it. But in the Bible, the whole thing is far more complicated. The idea is that salvation is past, present, and future tense. So you were saved. Yes, there was a moment, maybe a prayer or a conversation with a friend or a church gathering, something, and you decided to follow Jesus. But you are still being saved. You are being made over into the image of Jesus more and more over time. The scriptures often liken our relationship with Jesus to a marriage covenant. So the same principle is true. I got married to Abby on an evening in November in 2007. Uh, every day since then, she and I are learning how to walk in marriage and grow together as one. And then we are choosing to love one another more and more so that we can have a future together. But we could stop. We could quit. It happens all the time. And in the same way, you can bail on Jesus. It also happens all the time. I have a book coming out next year about this very thing, so it's been on my mind a lot lately as I've been trying to finish this final draft. It's, it's not that salvation is something that you can lose as if, oh, I just misplaced my salvation. I don't know what happened to me. I guess that's it. But salvation can be willfully set aside in the same way that a marriage covenant can be willfully uh, given up. It's not that the idea is that, oh, you broke too many rules and somehow you forfeited your status as redeemed. But just as you once said yes to the way of Jesus, you can then say no. Often this happens as a deliberate, outspoken thing, as is the case in the popular deconstruction herd. And often it's less purposefully articulated and someone simply quietly steps away from the way of Jesus. Maybe they haven't posted their big, brave, I quit post on Instagram, but their life no longer evidences anything of Jesus. They quit. You can come to faith, authentically love and follow Jesus, and then stop or quit or break covenant or leave the way of Jesus behind and in doing so forfeit the inheritance given in God through salvation, which is why Paul says it three times. You are reconciled to God and will continue to be if you continue, if you stand established and firmed, if you do not move. There is no once saved, always saved in Paul's writing. And think about it. If your reconcili reconciliation to God can't change no matter how hard you denounce Jesus, then what Paul writes here does not make any sense whatsoever. But Paul, in his many years of ministry, as is evidenced across all his writings, had experienced personally people bailing out on Jesus. 
The Christians in Colossae had begun to face cultural pressure to give up the teachings of Jesus, so he's writing with concern for them. He's pleading with the Colossians, remember the story, remember who you are, remember where you were, where you are now, and remember what's at stake. And then he concludes in verse 22, this is the gospel, the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, by proclaimed, Paul is talking about the scope of Jesus' kingship, not necessarily that every single person and animal has heard the gospel of Jesus, but that Jesus' rule and reign extends out over all of creation. That's the truth of the kingdom, and that reality is Paul's life work. Now, obviously, there's a ton there, but here's where I want to land before we end. We talk a lot about the work that it takes to translate an ancient letter, in, you know, written in an ancient language into, into an ancient culture on the other side of an ancient world. That takes a lot of work to translate that to our situation, our paradigm, our language, let alone our waking world. But it's incredible to me how much of this particular letter lifts right off the page and into Vancouver, Washington in 2021. I was never um, what you might call a social media enthusiast, but more than a year ago now, I just decided I didn't really want to look at it at all. And it's been a lot better for me. I feel much better. I highly, highly recommend it. But one of the weird side effects of being off social media for almost two years is that you hear about all the bizarre cultural hysteria secondhand from other people, which is hilarious to me because you have to just keep saying, what? You know, they've been inundated in it and then they have to somehow encapsulate all that into a tiny message to you in passing. Um, so someone had to tell me, for example, after the fact about the, the far right satanic QAnon death cults and the vaccine nanotechnology, mark of the beast paranoia and all that stuff. And sometimes, I don't know if they're kidding or not, but you just keep asking questions. Oh, wow. So that's where we're at. Someone had to tell me after the fact about all the, you know, left pseudo-progressive virtue signaling, whoever can find new ways to be offended wins stuff. Here's the latest thing. And then one afternoon, Abby was telling me about one such thing she stumbled upon on social media, and it was a controversial new movement against adoption. And I was fascinated by this because it sounded like the premise for like a novel that I would read or something. Now, obviously, adoption is a complicated idea. And from what I can tell, the processes, like anything run by humans, are imperfect and sometimes faulty. But the anti-adoption movement charges aggressively into the entire concept of adoption itself, as much as I can tell from my little bit of reading that I've been doing. The movement advocates or the movement's advocates, I should say, who are adoptees, describe themselves as victims of human trafficking. And they change their names to scrub themselves of any outward connection to their adoptive family, the family that they say purchased them against their will. And again, I won't pretend that adoption is uncomplicated and without corruption of any kind ever. And hardly anything surprises me anymore, but when Abby first described this whole thing to me, I kept waiting her, for her to say it was satire or that she was making it up. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to steal this for a book or something. But it was real. And I went and looked, and there's, there, you can go look it up. There's writing about it online. It made me think of one of my favorite metaphors in the entire New Testament. Maybe you recognize this passage from 1 Corinthians. Um, I'll just read it to you. It says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. 
You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, many of us read this and we go immediately to all of our theological paradigms of salvation, which is not wrong, that's true. But Paul, remember, was writing into first century Corinth, which was one of history's most prolific hubs for the sex industry. Now, hang in there with me for just a moment. This is going to sound pretty horrifying, but you need to understand the gravity of the symbolism here. In the ancient world, one prominent way of dealing with unwanted children was something called exposure. Abortion, at least the way that we know it, was even more violent and barbaric then and even more dangerous for the mother. So rather than abort, more often the mother would carry the baby to term, give birth, and then carry the newborn outside of the city to the dump where you would leave it to die of exposure to the elements or starvation or wild animals. And this was an ordinary, legal, completely socially acceptable thing to do especially in Corinth. And first century sex traffickers would prowl the dump for surviving babies to be taken and raised as prostitutes, to be abused to the point of total dehumanization in order to be commodified as slaves before they were even teenagers. Now, Paul's metaphor, you were bought at a price, taps into that paradigm and introduces this idea of a good master. The good master goes and he buys the young prostitute from her abuser. He liberates her from hell on earth. And rather than turning her loose to her own autonomy, he brings her home, not for sex, but as beloved daughter in his household, under his wise guidance and his kind and good authority. She is not her own. She belongs to the gracious care of the father who bought her at a price. And Paul says, that was you. You were left for dead to your own destruction. You were in bondage to your life of sin and the master came and found you. He rescued, rescued you. He bought your freedom, not for your autonomy, but for life in the master's home. And this image, this writing in 1 Corinthians so profoundly impacted the early church that we have writings that say that by the second century, the early Christians had become famous for going out into the city dumps and rescuing exposed babies to bring them home as their own children. Well, maybe you know yourself and your own story well enough to appreciate what it means to have been bought at a price, to have been washed and reconciled and redeemed and made holy and without blemish. And this premise is not lost on you, knowing yourself and knowing your story. But the narrative that we're often given is that we don't need any saving. And any attempts at what the Bible calls redemption are little more than colonizing efforts to steal us from our freedom and autonomy. That if we can't do whatever we want, buy, eat, and say whatever we want, spend our time however we want, have sex with whomever we want, live however we want, we are less than human and oppressed. This is what Paul describes as being alienated from God, being enemies of God in our minds. And out of this way of thinking and living blossoms what Paul calls evil deeds. And isn't it incredible that for Paul, what happens in our minds or what we believe is not some kind of private interior world with little to no bearing on our waking lives. The idea of being God's enemies in our minds is a sobering one, but it actually makes a lot of sense. All of us are being shaped all the time 
by stories. It tends to happen like this. There's the host culture in which we all live, which gives way to stories that you indulge because we tend to pick our preferred stories that make the most sense of us, and then they become the stories that we believe. All of us inhabit the same shared culture, right? We live in the same city and state and that kind of thing, but we each inhabit unique microcultures based on friends and families, interests, hobbies, priorities. So moms often talk about momming with other moms, fitness geeks talk about the gym and diet, political people get caught up in politics and on down the list. And as open-minded as we like to imagine ourselves, People, by and large, tend to prefer being affirmed in their thinking rather than challenged. That's not always bad. It can be good, but it is definitely the more comfortable option. So we tend to feed the things that we already believe, go looking for the things that we want to believe, and then we close ourselves off to whatever asks of us what we don't want to give. So we go to our preferred news outlets and podcasts and social media feeds to be patted on the head and think, yeah, we're so right. Everyone else is so dumb. It's one reason that I follow Jesus. Honestly, I am suspicious of anything that tells me exactly what I want to hear. And I don't want to deny myself and take up my cross and follow Jesus. It's one reason why I believe he's telling the truth. But if you don't want to deny yourself or take up your cross, you can keep moving through the mall of ideas until you find someone who will tell you that you don't have to do it. And I am by no means anti-culture or anti-art and entertainment or anti-challenging ideas. If anything, I'm sometimes accused of being too open to these things. But it's incredible to me that so many Christians I've known dedicate hours of their day and week to nonstop propaganda machines like social media, the 24-hour news cycle, outrage hysteria, socio-political melodrama, streaming service binging, and then they come to me as if helpless against their hearts drifting from God, as if they are unwitting victims of their own doubt, as if they just couldn't make it work. And again, I love art and film. I read and entertain and interact with ideas and opinions beyond my own paradigm every single day. But I want to be constantly feeding just as much and even more of what Paul says is the gospel I have heard that has been proclaimed into my thinking and feeling every single day. So I have to stay in the scriptures every single day. I read theology and listen to spiritual writers and thinkers. I listen to podcasts, podcasts and sermons or watch you know, Bible project videos on YouTube. We have so much access to so many resources grounded in the orthodox historic Jesus tradition. And like any other idea and story, the time we spend with stories shapes the way that we think and the way that we live. You are here, Paul says. You were alienated from God. You were cut off from his promises. You were left for dead. But you have been rescued and reconciled and redeemed. You are here. And here is where you will be if you persist and persevere against a veritable avalanche of stories and ideas competing for your heart's affection and allegiance. And if you stand firm and do not move from this hope, you will be saved and reconciled. The other day, my son was upset with me because I corrected him. And he said something mean-spirited in an effort to get back at me. And I sat down with him and told him, 
I think you're just trying to hurt my feelings because you're upset. But that is not you. You are a kind person. You constantly build me up in the things that you say. You bless and encourage me all the time, every single day. And this wasn't a trick. I wasn't trying to speak these things into existence. It was true. I meant those things. He was acting out of step with who he really is. You who follow Jesus, you are here. You have been washed and reconciled. You have been made blameless. And you are now, as you are with all your crap, you are without blemish, made holy in the sight of God. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, have our lives been evidence of that truth today or this past week? Have our lives reflected the reality that we have been redeemed and reconciled and made holy over the course of this chaotic and often painful year. No one expects you to carry on a life of unbroken benevolence, nor will God hold you accountable to ironclad, pitch-perfect theology and belief all the time. But I think most of us understand the difference between imperfections in our belief, working stuff out, learning and growing over time, trial and error. Most of us understand the difference between mistakes that we make and of which we repent, and a life lived as if we had not been redeemed and reconciled at all. The rebellious tantrum of the adoptee who wants to escape from under the master's care, who wants their name changed, who wants freedom from his household and his way of life, or the absent-minded, lazy negligence that spurns the saving work of God so that we can sit around and watch TV and look at smartphones without living into the call of God over our lives. I just... Turned 38 last week, and I don't know if it's a midlife thing or just this stage of my apprenticeship, but I'm becoming less and less interested on, in coasting on God's slow temper and grace. I'm becoming less and less interested in what Dallas Willard called the gospel of sin management, trying to just pick myself up every day and be, okay, not so great last day, but I'm going to get my act together. I actually want to thrive in the kingdom of God. I want to know the things that he has for me. I want to be the dad and the husband and the friend and the artist and pastor that he is asking me to be at this point in my life, looking forward into the future, into his call over my life and my church, my family, my friends. We gave ourselves a lot of leeway across the difficult terrain of last year, and there was a lot of talk about going easy on yourself and not feeling bad about not really doing anything. And that wasn't all wrong. It was really difficult for everyone. And we spent a lot of time here talking about that. But out of all that and into this weird phase of ambiguity that we're figuring out the shape of this church as it emerges from the haze of lockdown and restrictions, I don't want to become like a taskmaster master or a rule monger. I just want to take my life and my discipleship and our church and our shared discipleship as a family, I want to take these things very seriously and not waste all of our time on the gospel of sin management. Yeah, it's really hard out there, but God loves you. Let's get out there and do it. And the next week, oh my gosh, yep, it's really tough, but God loves you. Get out there and do it. We want to figure out who we are meant to be in Christ and then be those people. I've had this uh, Nick Cave lyric passing through my head for the last few months. The line is, 
there will always be suffering. It flows through life like water. I've been thinking about that, not as, you know, like a wham-wham, I'm goth and depressed kind of thing, though I am pretty goth because I'm wearing this hoodie in the summer. But I've been thinking about that line as a wise and prophetic statement about the nature of reality. I don't believe Buddha was right. Existence isn't suffering, but suffering does flow through life with things like joy and laughter and anger and fear. We were born screaming, smeared in blood, out into a world of pain and beauty, of love and suffering. And all of us were once far from the God who chased after us and broke his own body, spilled his own blood to bring us home, bought at a price, redeemed. That is where we are, and that is where we will be if we hold fast, persist, endure in the truth of the story that changed our lives and our world, and it still can. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.